Well, good morning. So, um, as we continue this study, um, I sure like many of you, and whenever I am looking to make a decision, and we make countless decisions every day, we're looking at different aspects, different qualities of what we're looking for to decide on, um, whether it be um, something small or even big things, and, and, and a number of you have big things maybe next year, you're doing it this fall, in the next coming years, you may be looking to go to a college or university, and as you're doing it, I'm sure you're not just picking it based on where your parents went um, or some superficial features, but there are, there are marks, there are distinguishing characteristics of schools or jobs that you're looking for. When you're looking for a school, what are some, what are some distinguishing marks of a good college or university that you would look for? Isaiah. Yeah, maybe, maybe you want a Christian college and like, I want them to teach the Bible. What are other good characteristics of a good college or university? Reliable professors? Sound doctrine. And this, this could be a public school too. Uh, it's cheap. Cheap. Cheap, but maybe cheap, but good, right? Cheap, but good. What else? What are other qualities of a good university, a good college? Will? Yeah, there's a good church near. Even like you talk about professors, how about that they actually have a degree in what they're teaching? Or they have, right, they have experience. Um, what about that they're accredited by a state board that we know that if I get this degree, an employer might actually, might actually say, yeah, that's a good enough degree that I can hire you for this job. Just like when we look at a college or institution or really any other, any other um, decision we make in this life, we look at certain characteristics, and the church is no different. When we look at a church and say, that's where I want to attend and worship the Lord in the future, if you have a family, that's where I want my family to worship and serve, there are marks of what a healthy church is intended to look like. We find those marks not based on our own intuition, right? With the university idea, it's just whatever you think is best, right? There's no right or wrong. Your parents might have some wisdom there, um, but there's really no right or wrong. But God, in His Word, has given us marks of a healthy church. And on Wednesday, you guys went through and you talked about the mark of the gospel. What is the biblical gospel, and what does a healthy church teach about how someone is made right with God. There are eight other marks that we'll be studying over the next number of weeks, and today we're going to come to the mark of biblical theology. Biblical theology. And there's two things contained. It's the, in, in this idea, there's biblical and theology. So what I want to do is I want to, whenever I get a topical lesson, I always like to just ask questions of the topic I've been assigned. I think that's the most um, direct way to move through it in a logical manner. So I just wanted to consider four questions today. First, what is biblical theology? Like, what does it mean? Second, why is biblical theology important? Third, what's essential in, within the topic of biblical theology? What is essential for a church to hold to to be healthy? And then fourthly, we'll just consider some application. Well, how do I determine if a church holds the biblical theology? How would I, how would I come to understand if, they're a, if it's biblical theology, if, it is, um, if they've departed, or they, or they don't even hold to those truths? So let's jump right in, and let's first look um, at 
what is biblical theology, and we'll first consider a definition. I want to take the words biblical theology, and I want to look at them backwards. First, what is theology? Well, theology is just the study of God, and it's not exclusively a Christian practice. There are false religions all have a theology. Islam has a theology of Allah. Buddhism could, could be considered to have a theology, though it doesn't really hold to a deity. There is a thought and practice to it. Hinduism has a theology of its millions of gods. Taoism has theology. All of these false religions still have a theology. So we can't just say, well, theology is really important. It is true, but what theology is important? And that is why the word biblical is critical. The word biblical just means related to or contained in the Bible. It needs to come from this book. Obviously, biblical means that. So we could have a simple definition of biblical theology as the study of God relating to or contained in the Bible. When we say biblical theology, I want to understand God, and the only source of truth about Him is going to be what I find in this book. We're not looking anywhere else. We're not looking in ourselves to understand who God is. We're not going to look in worldly books to understand who God is, though those can be helpful. But the final authority is this book, Biblical Theology. Another element we just briefly need to look at is, with this text, you can look at it in different ways. Theologically, we call that process hermeneutics, but you do hermeneutics when you, if you drive when you drive down the road because you look at a sign and it says slow children ahead and you have a decision to make. Are there physically slow children ahead and you need to watch out for slow-moving humans? Are there people that are intellectually slower than others? Or should you slow down because there are kids that are going to be playing on the road? That's all we mean by hermeneutics. How do I look at something and interpret it? And there are three common methods, there's many more, but there are just three briefly common methods to interpret God's Word. The first is a moral interpretation. This is practiced by the Jews, and they just believe that the, the Scriptures, it had, it had a, a layer of moral imperative to everything. So when you read a Scripture, you need to understand how God wants you to act based on reading that. Another way to look at the Bible is it's an allegory, which means that there is always something lying under the text. You're looking for a, a, set, a, a meaning that you can extract. And then third, there's a literal interpretation. So we studied Nehemiah um, probably like eight months ago now. And in, in Nehemiah 2.17, just looking at how would you apply this, Nehemiah 2.17, um, it's, it's written, Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we're in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. So how do we use that? How do we actually look at how you would come to understand that passage different, differently? Well, a moral interpretation would be that of that we need to build these walls. Well, it's bad to associate with people that are outsiders. So the, so the fact that we're building walls means that we need to not associate with people outside of these walls. An allegorical interpretation could be that we need to allow the Spirit to build a wall of separation between us and the world so that we don't become like the world. Do you see how that's taking like a, a hidden meaning that could be there? Well, a literal interpretation 
is just an approach that seeks out the plain meaning of the text. So if we read that passage, what does it mean? It means that the walls were knocked down and burned, and Nehemiah said, hey, we should fix that. Clearly, in the context of an historical narrative, that's what the writer was intending. And as we go through this, and even these nine marks, we've got this great book. Um, some of you uh, may become members, or we introduced new members last Sunday. You may have family members that are new members. In the class that we do, our church has a doctrinal statement that's in this handy guide. So as we go through some of these topics today, I will reference what our doctrinal statement says because you can know what our church teaches. Our church is very transparent about what it teaches on especially these nine marks and the essentials, but other doctrines as well. And then you can use that to say, does that match up with what the Bible teaches? Well, our church on the idea of interpretation, we hold to the literal interpretation. Um, just reading part of this, it says, the meaning of Scripture is to be found as one diligently applies the literal grammatical method of interpretation under the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. And what that means is key in the next sentence is that you just follow the normal rules of interpreting literature. So we interpret the Bible like we would interpret the newspaper when we read it, or we drive by a sign. We use the context. We use our understanding of the situation that we are in, in this case, the people that we're in, and you just read it normally. So we read historical narrative like it's a story about what actually happened. We read a poem like it's a poem. We don't look for extra meaning. Well, now that we understand first what biblical theology is and then how when we read the Bible we could extract the true, the truth of biblical theology and what God intends us to know, let's briefly consider well, why is it important? Why is it one of the nine marks? Because certainly there are other things that could be a mark of a biblical church. We don't even talk about missions. Why isn't that a, nine, what, isn't that a mark? Well, this is why. First is a practical reason but before I get to that practical reason, I want you to understand that there are churches that don't think biblical theology is a mark of a healthy church. There are churches that don't even think theology is important. There are people that will say, it's not important. We don't need theology. We just need more Jesus. That sounds good, doesn't it? Because Jesus is our Savior. He's the center of our faith. But what did I, when I started describing Jesus, what problem do I run into? I started doing theology. Anything you know about Jesus is theology. He was born of the Virgin Mary theology. He's the Son of God. What do those things mean? So we can see that that's really, it's really uh, an unhelpful and it doesn't, in a, in a completely silly way to consider Christianity because if we are talking about Jesus, if we're talking about God, we have to do theology. We need to know what's true. Um, and that is the first practical reason. Truth matters. Truth is important. You see, in Titus 2.1, Paul wrote to Titus, who's setting up churches in Crete. He's finding elders. He says, but as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting sound doctrine. Speak the things which are fitting sound doctrine. Paul tells Titus, when you are talking, when you are teaching, when you are looking for elders, when you are exhorting people, only, don't speak what you want. Don't speak good ideas. Only speak the things that are fitting, sound, or healthy teaching. Which means, if there's healthy teaching, if there's sound teaching, there is unhealthy teaching. 
very important. Also, we learn that God is a God of truth in Psalm 31, 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. Which means God is the author of what is true. If it doesn't accord with what he says, what's in his word, it's error. So we need to understand that. And this is really key. Practical reason. But Peter tells us that the origin of the words of the prophets that are written down in inspired scripture don't originate from man. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. That's key. Let's stop there. That means when I read this book, it doesn't matter what I think something means. It doesn't matter what I think it means. Well, then what? It, he continues, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. If it doesn't matter what I think it means, well, clearly, Peter says, it doesn't matter what you say. People didn't speak of their own initiative. God spoke through them, and we need to understand what God intended us to know. That's a practical reason why understanding the truth, understanding theology, biblical theology matters, because... God has given us truth. There's a second reason I think we can extract from why this is an important, and it's an imperative reason. It's God's expectation. God expects his children, his followers, to know truth from error. To know truth from error. Deuteronomy 4:39. Know therefore today. That's a command. God is saying, you need to know these things and take it into your heart. Don't just know them, but act, live accordingly. That the Lord, He is God in heaven above and on the earth below, there is no other. Those are like the basics for Israel. Like you need to understand this. Notice that He says, know therefore today and take in your heart that the Lord, the Lord, there's only one, He is God of everything on earth and heaven, and there's no one else. We need to know that. God expects us to know that and live accordingly. Psalm 119, there's countless, countless mentions in the, in the Psalms, and especially Psalm 119, about understanding and knowing God's word. In verse 52, the psalmist says, I have remembered your ordinances from old. Well, to remember something, we have to know it, right? So it's clear that God expects us to know things so that we can recall them when it would be helpful. <clears throat> and lastly, Jesus said, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching. You want to be a follower of God? Jesus says you're going to know if the teaching is of God or if it's not. It's very critical. And as we look at all of these mentions of knowledge, if you go to the New Testament, you can open your Bibles to um, 1 Corinthians 6. I just want to show you how clear this is. 1 Corinthians 6. In the New Testament, there are 431 mentions of the word know, K-N-O-W, of having knowledge or you should know this 431 times, more than the word love, more than the word heaven, more than the word hell. The word no is prevalent. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, a passage where Paul is directly 
running headlong into the error of the Corinthians and what they're doing, he goes to their knowledge to confront them. Let's just look. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, let's start in verse 2. Paul says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Verse 3, Do you not know that we will judge angels? Look at verse 9. Or do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The Corinthians were, were in terrible sin. There was dissensions. And he continually, over and over again, says, Don't you know this? And it's a rhetorical question because the answer is, yeah, they should know that. Verse 15, Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Verse 16, or do you not know that one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? Lastly, in verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Just six times in that one chapter, Paul directly confront sin with the expectation that if someone's in Christ, they should know the truth. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 again, when he says, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He doubles down. He says, don't you know this? Don't be deceived. So there are people spreading untruth. And Paul says, don't be deceived. You should know these things. So with that foundation that, one, now we know what biblical theology is. Two, we know why it's important because God expects us to know his truth. And it just makes practical sense that if we're going to follow God, we should understand what he commands. Let's look then at what are some essential theological teachings that a healthy church is going to hold to. And first, I just want to briefly examine the scriptures. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 says, the Bible is God's only written word. You accepted what the apostles were teaching, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. This book that we study is important because it's not just a book written by some men, like secular people try to say. It is God's inspired truth. It's God's inspired truth. And because it is God's inspired truth, it has, it has some crucial attributes. First, it is inerrant. That means that there aren't any errors in it. The second is it's infallible. That means it's incapable of being wrong. Those are two different things. Those are two different things. There's no errors in the original manuscripts, which we can be very reliable. Our Bibles are representations of, and second, it's infallible. That means when you apply it rightly, it's incapable of being wrong. And then third, it is sufficient. That means it's complete. It's adequate and capable to do what God has intended it to do. We don't need other things. We don't need self-help books. We don't need philosophers of the world. We don't need um, the best ideas about the latest experts. It is sufficient. And our doctrinal statement says, we believe and teach that the Bible constitutes the only necessary and infallible rule of faith and practice and is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. You see, what we know about God comes from this book. It must. Well, what are some red flags? When you're looking for a healthy church, 
and say, well, the Bi- what they say about the Bible has got to be really important. What are some red flags that we would be brought concern if we saw them as we were looking for a church? Well, the first one's obvious. If Scripture is the only inspired Word of God, if they hold to other inspired texts, that's a red flag. We should be concerned. Second, what if they say, hey, the, the Bible is God's only inspired word, but there are other sources of revelation. Like there are modern prophets, and you can hear from God, and he'll tell you personally what to do. Well, if, like we just learned, this book is sufficient. Why? Why would we need to hear personal revelations from God? Why wouldn't I just look in his word? Because then I can read the words and make sure I got it right. And then third, theological liberalism, it's not a political idea. It's just this idea that the Bible isn't, one, it's not free from errors, but two, that even the miracles and the events that happen in here, some of them never happened. They algorize them, they twist them. And it just undermines the entire concept that God has inspired this book. Well, let's move now to really the core of what we're here to discuss this morning. Theology is the study of God. We've covered the Bible. Let's look at some foundational and essential truths that are taught about God in Scripture that are clear beliefs that a healthy church will hold on to. Most of what we're about to go over is that if, if a church denies these truths we're about to discuss, they're actually not even a true church. You could, it's not a debate between healthy or a little sick. They're, they're either healthy or they're not a church. CBC Doctrinal Statement says, we believe and teach that there is but one living and true and infinite, all-knowing, self-existent spirit, perfect in all his attributes, one in essence, eternally existing in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each equally deserving of worship and obedience. The fundamental theological doctrine about who God is is a term you're familiar with. It's the Trinity. But we say that word all the time, but I bet if I asked most of you, you might struggle with, what does it mean? What's a definition of the Trinity? Because we understand it, there's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but if someone said, hey, what's the, what's the Trinity? How's God a Trinity? I mean, I haven't been asked that recently. You might struggle with it, but it's important to know. And Wayne Grudem defines it very simply in this way. It's something that you can you can memorize. The Trinity is just the doctrine that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then one, each person is fully God, but there is only one God. The Trinity is not there are three gods within one Godhead. That's heresy. There is one God, three persons. The Trinity is not there, there was God in the Old Testament and then Jesus came in the New Testament as a manifestation of God, and then now we have the Spirit. It's called modalism. That's a heresy. That's not the Trinity. The Trinity is there is only one God. He exists in three person. They're all fully God. There's no separation in them. Well, let's examine each of these members of the Trinity then. Because since they are all unique, united in one Godhead, yet there are three persons. Let's look at each 
person of the Trinity. What is essential to believe about God the Father? See, he's the first person of the Trinity, and the first attribute we learn about God is found in Genesis 1-1, that he is a creator. Our God is a creator. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And I have a little error here on the slide. Clearly, creator and sovereign mean different things. When we say God is a creator, we mean just very simply that God brought all things into being without any pre-existing material. The only thing that existed before God created was God. That was it. There was no material. There was no space. Space is measurable, right? And when, so when God creates all of these fundamental things of creation, time, space, matter, they have to come into being at the same time, and they can't exist independently. If you have space but not matter, there's nothing in it, if you have space and not time, there's nothing to measure it. They are all independent. They are all dependent on each other. God is a creator, and He created everything out of nothing. Second, our God is sovereign, and that means that He has absolute rule and authority over all things. The clearest verse on that in our Bibles is, I believe, is Psalm one hundred fifteen, verse three which says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. There is no one in this room, no matter how much pride, there's been no king on this earth throughout the course of human existence that could say and actually do, and then live out, I do whatever I please. Plenty of kings have thought that. There's plenty of examples of those kings in the Bible. But the only true one person being in existence who could actually say it and deliver is God. He is sovereign. He is so sovereign. I love this quote from R.C. Sproul. He said, if there is one single molecule in the universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God's will will ever be fulfilled. Because that one rogue, just like cancer, that one rogue cell could destroy and infect everything. God's sovereign over everything. doesn't mean he's the author of things that are against his will. But he ordains all of history. He knows the beginning. He knows the end from the beginning. He's the alpha and the omega. He is sovereign. Third, God is holy. And this is the doctrine that God is completely separated from sin and He is devoted to seeking His own honor and glory. You've heard this often, but to be holy means to be set apart. God is utterly and completely set apart from everything. He is in His own category of moral perfection. Perfection is a being. There is nothing like God. And because He's so holy, He can't be in the presence of sin. And God, because He's holy, He expects everyone else, all of His other created beings, to do that. And since we are created in His image, we should exercise His moral character. That's why, um, most clearly, Peter says, he quotes the Old Testament, says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. You, mankind, should be holy, because that's what I'm like. 
And we saw that in the person of Christ. He's the only man ever to live a holy life like God is holy. And fortunately for our sakes, he lived that in our place because I think that you all agree that are we a holy people? We are not a holy people. But God is holy, and he sent his holy, one-of-a-kind, unique son, who we will talk about in just a moment, to live that holy, perfect life that we should live and we fail to do every day to avoid what we're about to talk about, God's wrath. You see, Jesus took God's wrath upon himself so that those who trust in his one sufficient atonement will be rescued from the wrath of God. And God's holiness requires God's wrath. Because if he can't have any sin around, if he must be separated, if there is sin, he must intensely hate it, which is what his wrath is. God's intense hatred, his disposition against anything which is against his holy nature. You see, that can sound harsh, but think of it this way. If you have a sibling, if you have a parent and someone hurts them, whether it's a person whether it's a disease, whether it's a circumstance, if it harms them, our initial reaction is that we're indignant. We are angry that something terrible has befallen them. And we're just sinful, created human beings. Imagine being the holy, perfect God of the universe. You do all these good things to your creation, and then the first man and woman you create, you give them one simple rule, and they can't even follow it. They eat the apple. They want to be like you. God must be a God of wrath. He must send sinners to hell. But he's also a kind God, which we haven't even covered here. He's a kind, he's a faithful, he's a loving God. Let's God the Father. Let's examine his son. What is essential? And these aren't exhaustive lists. These are what I would say, These four, I've called out three or four issues for each member of the Trinity. Why I call them out is because they're going to be the ones you find the most tension over when you look at churches around the area. There's a lot of churches. I mean, find me a church that like won't talk about God's love. It's not going to happen, right? Everyone loves to talk about God's love because I love to be loved. I love me, send me. God loves me too, so that's great. He's, I'm on board with him. I don't like it when people are upset with me. So churches will shove under the rug that God's a God of wrath, that he has expectations of us because I just want to show up. You know, Sunday morning, you know, sit in the back row, watch a service, hang out with some friends, slip out the back door. So we're talking about areas that there is some debate or tension over in the modern church. So what do we need to know about Jesus? First, he is both God and man. Jesus is not just, he is God, but he is not simply God. He is truly God, yet truly man. And I like that better than fully God and fully man because I do, I do math and 100% plus 100% is 200% and things can't be 200% of anything. Um, and that, so that's a, God's not illogical. So I like truly God. He is truly God in every, every way that God is God. Jesus Christ is God. But he's also truly man in every single way that all of you sit here in this room this morning. Jesus Christ is truly a man today in the same way that you are human, except he is not with sin. He's not a sinner. He never broke God's law, which is our second point. Jesus never violated any, God, any of God's positive or negative commands in thought, word, or deed. What are positive commands? That means God says, you do this. 
Jesus did all those things every time. And he didn't think, well, maybe I'm not going to do it. He said, I want to please God, so I'm going to do this. And then he did it. And he spoke it. God's negative commands in when he says, you shall not fill in the blank. Jesus didn't do any of those things, and he didn't think about doing any of those things. He was, and this is what should blow your mind, he was tempted in every single way that you and I are tempted. Like, who's ever tempted to lie to their parents? Just clean your room? Where were you last night? Who were you with? He was tempted in all those ways, and he didn't even think about breaking God's law. He's like, well, that actually be a lot easier, you know, if I, you know, Mary, or Dad, uh, I was a, uh, I was definitely um, working on building that shed for the people that hired us to do that. He's a carpenter. But no, he wasn't even tempted. Because guess what? He wasn't even in the spot he wasn't supposed to be. He was always doing what he was supposed to do, so it was easy to answer the question. He was like, yeah, I was doing what I was supposed to do. He was sinless. His death and resurrection. Jesus died a real, and this is the key word, write this down, physical death, and was bodily raised from the grave. That word physical is crucial. It's critical because there's a lot of people that will say, yeah, D Jesus died and then he, he spiritually rose. The Muslims believe that Jesus didn't really even die on the cross. They believe he swapped out. Interesting also that, here, here, here's a freebie for you, is that the, the Muslims believe, the Quran, it says that the Gospels are true. Did you know that the, the, the book, the Quran, says that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are 100% true? And then it says Jesus didn't die on the cross. What do the Gospels teach? So there you go. That's all you need to know that the, Muslim, that the Quran can't be inspired by God because it contradicts himself. Just one verse. Jesus died a real physical death. He, he died. It wasn't, just the, it wasn't just his human nature. He, he died. He was dead. He died on a cross. He was buried in a tomb. He was there for three days. He didn't spiritually arise from the dead. That would be easy. If Jesus would have told his followers, yeah, I'm going to die, and then three days later, I'm going to spiritually rise from the dead. That's something we can't witness. It's something we can't prove. But he made an incredible claim that I'm going to die a real death, and three days later, my body that you see now will be raised. If we don't hold to that, we, didn't, we call Jesus Christ a liar because that is what he said would happen. It is crucial that Jesus physically died and was bodily raised from the grave. Lastly, what's essential to believe about him, he's a savior. And not only is he a savior, he is the only savior. He is the only means for a sinner to be made right with God. John 14, 16, Jesus said to him, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That means when all of these other world religions, self-help books say, there are other ways for you to be made right with God. If we put any of our trust in them, we make Jesus out to be a liar. We make Jesus out to be a liar. We tell him that you're, you're not the only Savior. You're a good option, but there are other things that, out there that I can, I can trust in that I can do 
to be made right with God. And even if we say, yeah, Jesus, you're the only Savior, but I just want to steal a little inch of the last mile. I want a little contribution into that salvation. Jesus completely saves us by himself. His perfect life, his perfect atonement on the cross are all we need to be reconciled from God if we would trust in that and turn from our sins. There's no and. There are fruit. If you do that, things will happen, right? Behold, a new creation has come. If you become something totally different, you change. You do different things. But we don't have to do anything. There are no works, no religious ceremonies, nothing to be added to it. He's our only Savior, our only hope. Well, there's a third member of the Trinity, and that's God the Spirit. And what is crucial, most crucial, and this is, there, there are so many issues in the church today about this. The Spirit, we need to understand the Spirit is a person. The Spirit is a person. What do I mean by that? Well, theologians will say that the Holy Spirit possesses personal attributes. He does things that a person would do. Like the Spirit has intellect, which means he can make decisions. The force in Star Wars or this like when you say like, I'm sending you like, I'm sending you good vibes, whatever that means. That vibe, if it can even be vibed, it has no will, right? It's just an imagined energy. Or even the force, how about the force of gravity? Something that um, actually exists. The force of gravity does not get to decide to let Sam float up to the ceiling, but everyone else stays here. It can't decide to do that. But God, the Holy Spirit, makes decisions. He chooses to regenerate, we'll talk about in a moment, whom the Father has told him to draw to himself. He makes a decision. I'm going to do it now. No, not quite yet. He has emotions, just like we have emotions. We can feel different emotions. That we can be, we can, he can be indignant towards sin. He can, he can be a spirit of love, compassion. He's a spirit of truth. He's, and he has will. He's a person. He has personal characteristics. It's also essential to understand that the spirit is the cause of the new birth. And just, actually, just briefly, I believe I have, a, I have some verse references. If you want to jot any of these down for God being a spirit, or the spirit having, having intellect, because this is an interesting study to do. If you write down 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 13, we see that the spirit has intellect. From, if you want to study more about the spirit having emotions, we just studied Ephesians. Ephesians 4.30 is a great verse to go to. Or his will, 1 Corinthians 12.13. But the Spirit, not only is a person, He is a person who causes the new birth, which is the Spirit's regenerating work that causes the believer to be born again. In Titus 3.5, Paul writes this. This is a memory verse. You all know it. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewing, by the Spirit, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Spirit. The initial act of salvation is initiated by God the Holy Spirit. Well, what would be the opposite of that? 
But we just studied, Pastor Tom just walked us through this and when he talked about the order of salvation. But it's very, very common in most churches that say, they say the actual process starts with you. You make the decision. And then the Holy Spirit, he's, every, right, he's, he's God, so he's omnipresent. He's everywhere, so he doesn't have to like run across the world to you. But the logic is then you decide, he's like, oh, that guy believed. He goes over here. It's like Aaron, Aaron believed, so now I'm going to give him a new heart. Now I'm going to justify him. Now I'm going to adopt him. No, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense because the Bible is very clear that we don't have the capability to make the decision that would cause that action, which makes a lot more sense is God has determined who he has saved, and the Spirit works through the gospel to regenerate their heart. He gives them a new heart, and then all of those actions flow from it from the new position the believer has from God. And lastly, a key truth about the Spirit, so important. His ministry is to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 16, 14, Jesus said, He, the Spirit, again, personal, right? Spirit's He. He's not it. He, the Spirit, will glorify me, for He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. A lot of churches love to talk about the Holy Spirit, or some. No, it's really weird. They t- they drop off the the, and they just like we we're like we love Holy Spirit. It's like that's not His name. It's not Holy Spirit. Like it, Scripture always says, the Holy Spirit. They talk about the Holy Spirit and all these things that He does, and then what it's done is to produce experiences for men. It's to produce works. It's to produce miracles that are worship that are focused in an environment. But the, the Spirit's ministry isn't to do things that are for us, to produce signs and wonders for us, to create experiences for us. He points back to Christ. This, he was sent by Christ to bring glory to Christ, to draw men and women to himself and to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are key, essential truths that a healthy church <clears throat> will hold on to. What are some red flags when we look at the doctrines of God? First, big red flag, they don't affirm the Trinity. Young men and women, if a church does not affirm the Trinity, they are not a church. They don't worship the same God we worship. The Mormons believe that Jesus was a created being through sexual intercourse with God the Father and Mary, and that he's got a brother, Satan. That's not the God of the Bible. They will tell you, we love Jesus. It's not the same Jesus. It's also becoming more common. They're, they're, you may not hear it called this because they try not to call it this. It's called oneness Pentecostalism. Pentecostal is a lot of the charismatic churches. They believe in, in healing gifts and, and people speaking in tongues as a requirement for salvation. But then they also believe that God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they actually don't, they couldn't be, the best way to describe it, if you, if you ask someone, could God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all be in this gym with us right now? They'd say no. They don't believe in the Trinity. They believe in that heresy of modalism, that God is in different manifestations at different times. That's not what the Bible teaches. Right? At Jesus' water baptism, 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were there in the Jordan at one time. Next, they could hold to an unbiblical view of the Trinity. So they could say there's no Trinity, like, like, like Muslims say that God has no son, okay? Like that's not even, like we're not even like kind of in the ballpark. God has a son. Modalism is an unbiblical view of the Trinity. Then you could have an unbalanced view of the Trinity. You don't have an unbalanced view of the Trinity. There's a, there's a very famous pastor in Houston who loves to talk about God, but you'll never hear him mention Jesus. You'll never hear him mention Jesus. Why? Well, Jesus is controversial. Some people will say God, God can't know the future. Well, then he's not sovereign. <clears throat> and then you'll see churches that have an unbalanced view of God's attributes, like we were talking about before. A church, I mean, they're rare, but a church that's just focused on wrath. All they do is talk about how God hates sinners. And, and we, in our little holy huddle here, we need to go tell people how much God hates what they're doing. That's not a biblical view of God. What's more common, though, is churches that say, God loves, God loves all you guys. And he's really, I mean, I mean, he's hoping that you like him, but he really likes you. Um, so hopefully, hopefully you give him a thumbs up. And um, if you like him enough, come, come back next week. It's an unbalanced view of God's attributes. Well, just quickly, how do I find out? We have a doctrinal statement. A lot of churches do too. Uh, they're not as <coughs> detailed. Um, but just quickly, if you look at a church's sermons, they'll have websites. It's great. You don't even have to go anymore. You don't have to be like Justin and pull out the phone book. You probably have never held the phone book in your hands. You're probably like, what are you talking about? Is that an app? It's not an app. It's not an app. And it's not Google. <clears throat> Look at the style of sermons they have. Are they topical? Do they, like, I'm doing a topical sermon right now. Justin did one a week ago. Joe did one. But is that all they do? And, or, or do they preach God's word? Do they, do they go verse by verse through the Bible? More importantly, what's the content? Is it centered on Scripture? Or does the guy get up here, he reads a Bible verse, and then he starts telling these stories? that kind of tie in about like something he did in college and it was funny and you laugh because that church likes to have fun. So we're laughing. We're having a good time. But it's not centered on the Bible. A really easy way is just like sermon series. Like you drive, man, if you're driving down the road around here and you see a church that's got a sign and it's like all fancy and designed, it's almost never got a Bible verse on it, which is a problem. It's all about self-help and those things. I looked at, um, this is a church, won't name it, it's close, but they have a sermon series going on right now called Playlist, Volume 2, which means they had a Volume 1. And their description was, after asking our congregation to vote on their favorite songs by genre, we will spend the month of July examining the top crowdsource selections through which our community senses the Almighty. What is that? And the song that they did last week when I pulled this off was like, You're Always on My Mind by Willie Nelson, which is a terrible song. So now I have a judgment on the pastor and then the congregation. Like, come on, we got, better, we got better songs than that. We can do a little better. Or this just kicked up. This has been a popular theme. At the movies, this church says, we'll watch scenes from some powerful movies during church. And the pastor will use them to teach us more about God, ourselves, and the life that's possible for us. We're going to watch some movies. Y'all want to sit down? We'll watch Inception. And then we just keep diving into dream levels or whatever. Learn about yourself. Yeah, you're like an onion. Just peel it back. 
as a kicker, though, I didn't put this on here, but they also, he's like, oh, and by the way, we also make the lobbies look like a movie theater lobby. So they have popcorn, so you can watch popcorn and go to church. It's silly. Well, <clears throat> that's, that's unbiblical, obviously. <clears throat> also, just very quickly, look at their mission, look at what they believe. Like, we have, we have this book, and in this book is a doctrinal statement. This is another church that's local to us. This is all, like, nothing, nothing they say in that paragraph is wrong. Did my slide not update? My slide didn't update. Nope. Okay. We're going a little, we're going a little slow today. Um, but it's, it's like a paragraph, and it's based on the Nicene Creed. All true. Love it. There's more to be said about God than three paragraphs of text, if you want to know what a church believes. So just understanding that we need to go and look for a church. And the good thing is, is they're all showing it to us and they're making it very obvious because they're advertising to unbelievers what they want in a church. And what the world wants in a church is not what a Christian wants in a church. Well, <clears throat> how do we apply this to our lives? What, do we, what, what should we do with this? First, if you're here and, and you're an unbeliever, you, you don't need to worry about what church you're going to find, about like, what about, okay, so God is... Um, God's a creator. You need to understand that God is sovereign over your life and you are, he is a holy God and that you are in rebellion against him. That is what you need to focus on, that you are warring against a holy God, but that God sent his only son into the world to live the life that you have failed to live, to die the death you and me and all of us deserve in that he, his spirit can give you new life. Just put your trust in that Savior, turn from your sins, and God will adopt you into his family. But if you're a Christian, if you have made that, if, if that reality has happened to you, if you're a Christ's, then understand first that it is, import, it is, it is more important to put effort into examining and looking for a biblical church than it is to figure out what's the best college for me. Because before you're looking at all those collegiate checkboxes, before you're figuring out, well, I should live here because this town has, it's got a cool shopping center, good nightlife, you know, it's got a Hobby Lobby, and I like to do some crafts, so I'm going there. It's got some rec sports leagues, so I'm going to move there because I can have some fun. Examine the churches in the community to see if there's even one that meets these standards. Because if there isn't, it might not be a good place to move. It might not be a good place to relocate to. And if you are in a church, and I would hope that you would all agree that we are currently in a church, and if you find in the future a church that holds these marks, praise God that he has been faithful to provide his children <clears throat> a place that is a healthy environment to grow spiritually, to serve others, and to glorify God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the church. Thank you that we can spend this summer studying what a, a biblical church looks like and what we should do as believers in that church. And Lord, give us hands that once we are in that church that, would, that we would serve, that we would use the gifts the Spirit has granted us and get to work. And Lord, we pray that we would just be ever more focused on you to be exalting you in songs, and praises, and in the study and worship of your word, for your name's sake. Amen.